All right, Psalm 112 is where we are at this morning. Follow with me as I read Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Well, like its counterpart, Psalm 111, this psalm is a hymn of praise. It's a song that exalts the Lord as the one who should be the center of our lives the one around whom our world should revolve, the sun around whom the planets of our own personal solar systems should orbit. Steve Lawson writes, Everyone has someone or something at the very center of their lives. No one is without a driving force and consuming passion at the core of his being. For some people, their lives revolve around good things, like their children, career, parents, or even ministry. For other people, their lives center on shallow things, such as a favorite sports team, their yard, or a hobby. And yet for others, their lives rotate around the shallowest of all things, themselves. But for the Christian... Everything in his or her life revolves around one driving passion and one dominant pursuit, God himself. God must be at the center of every life or it will be off track. Everything and everyone else must be secondary. God must be primary. This is the heart of a God-centered life. Well, that's what Psalm 112 calls us to. Psalm 112 is a song of praise that calls us to the God-centered life. It calls us to fear the Lord, to love him above all else. Therefore, our big idea this morning is this. God wants us to fear him, that is, to love him above all else, which results in receiving blessings which endure. 
The fear of the Lord uh, is a very simple concept in Scripture, though it's oftentimes misunderstood. The fear of the Lord for his children is not a cowering fear like it is for the unbeliever who's facing judgment, but the fear of the Lord for the believer is a supreme love. To fear the Lord means to love him more than anything and anyone else. And that fearing of the Lord, that exalting of the Lord, loving him more than anything else, is then what leads to blessings which endure. This psalm gives four reasons to love the Lord above all else. Number one, reverent love for the Lord leads to delighting in his word, which results in true riches that endure. The fear of the Lord is that supreme love. It's a love that doesn't take God uh, on a casual basis, but a serious basis. We revere him. It's a reverent love. It's that adoring love that leads to obedience. Notice how the psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. So part of what it means to fear the Lord or to have this reverent love for the Lord is to delight in his word. That when you open the scriptures on a Sunday morning like we're doing now, you're excited to hear from God. You know that scripture is the way that God speaks. And you want to hear from him. So you come with a sense of anticipation in your heart. To delight in the word of God means that throughout the week you have a hunger to be in God's word, to hear him, to talk to him in prayer, but then to hear him speak to you through his word. That delight, that heart's affection for God's word is part of what it means to fear him. Psalm 1 describes the blessed man this way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In other words, the man who wants to be blessed, the woman who wants to be blessed more than anything, wants to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. And the only way to do that is to be in the word of God. And it is to be delighting in the word of God that what you hear from God takes precedence over every other message that you are receiving in this world. There are so many voices that we are hearing in our day and age. Whose voice are you listening to? the most? Whose voice are you seeking the most? When you need advice, when you need counsel from other people, who do you go to? What kind of books do you read? Do you seek out counsel that is committed to the scriptures, that is committed to the word of God, or do you run to find any voice that already says what you really want to hear? Because we can all do that, right? Search the internet and you can find a counselor who will tell you anything that you want to hear already in your flesh. What you have already decided you want to do, you can find someone to tell you that that's the right thing to do. The question is, does it match God's word? 
Is it true? Are you delighting in the truth of God's word? And then the psalmist goes on in Psalm 1 to describe what happens when we delight ourselves in God's word. He is like a tree that is the blessed man, the blessed woman, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither in all that he does he prospers. There is spiritual fruitfulness that comes out of loving God by delighting in his word. There is stability, spiritual stability, stability of life. When there's a storm, you stand because God is the one who is strengthening you. And he says in all that he does, he prospers prospers by God's definition, not necessarily prospers by the world's definition, but by God's definition. What a wonderful truth that is. Look at verse 2. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. In other words, this blessed man who is described in verse 1 as a man who delights in God's word has children and his Children are blessed by his godliness. Even if they don't necessarily recognize it or acknowledge it, the children of the blessed man are blessed. They'll be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Proverbs 20, verse 7 says the same thing. Wealth and riches, verse 3, are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. There's a general principle throughout Scripture that those who love the Lord and those who follow his word experience a certain level of blessing even in this world, the abundant life that Jesus spoke of. This is not a surefire promise at all times. We all go through times of struggle. We all go through times of need. And we trust the Lord and we seek him and ask him to provide. But this is the general rule that we see laid out for us that there is great blessing with walking with the Lord. But ultimately, verse 3 points to the spiritual riches that belong to the blessed man who knows Christ. Paul says in Ephesians that we have already been seated in the heavenly places. We have the abundance of riches in Jesus Christ. We are richer than we can imagine. So reverent love for the Lord leads to delighting in his word, which results in true riches that endure. What kind of riches do you want? Do you want the riches that will endure? Do you want to do as Jesus says in, in Matthew 6 and invest your life in eternity, in the eternal riches? What are you focusing on? What are you delighting in? Psalm 19.10 says that God's word is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. What is your heart's desire this morning? Are you delighting in the word of God? There's a second reason to love the Lord above all else. We see this in verses 4 through 6. And that is that reverent love for the Lord leads to righteous living, generosity, and an enduring testimony. Verse 4, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. 
In other words, light comes through the righteous in the world to shine light into the darkness. We are the lights of the world, the Lord Jesus says. And that's why Paul challenges us in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8 to walk as children of the light. We live in a world that is overcome by darkness, and it's always been this way. It looks darker at times than others, but even when Jesus came into this world, the first chapter of the Gospel of John says that light broke into the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it or could not overwhelm it. That should give us great encouragement that as we hold forth the word of truth, as we hold forth the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the Gospel, that there is no darkness in this world that can overcome that light. God will accomplish his purposes through those who fear him. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. In other words, this is how his light shines. So we walk as children of light. Well, what does our light look like in this world? Are we always angry about something in the world? Or are we gracious, merciful, and righteous? Are we adorning the gospel? Do people look at our joy and do they look at our lives and say, there's something different about that person, their lives disclose something that's beautiful, something that's glorious. We are called to adorn the gospel, to make the gospel look beautiful to the world, shining our light, being gracious, merciful, and righteous. Verse 5, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. So again, these are qualities of the man or the woman who fears the Lord. Generosity, justice in his affairs. In other words, you are handling the matters of your life with integrity, handling your finances with integrity. When you speak to others, you're speaking the truth, not altering the truth just a little bit to make yourself always look like you're in the right, but being truthful. For the righteous, verse 6, will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. There is an enduring testimony that lives on after a righteous man or a righteous woman dies and leaves this world. There is something that is remembered There's someone that's remembered, yes, but there's something that's remembered, that is what they loved, who they loved, what they stood for. Some of you have lost loved ones in the last few years, loved ones who knew the Lord Jesus Christ, and when you speak about them, there is something that endures. They're gone. We don't see them anymore but their testimony lives on. Why? Because they feared the Lord. They loved him more than anything else. There's a third way to love the Lord above all else. We see this in verses 7 and 8. Reverent love for the Lord leads to trusting him in the face of fear and a victory that endures. 
I love these verses. Look at the confidence in verse 7. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. So the person who fears the Lord does, doesn't watch the daily news through a lens of fear. Remember when you were kids or parents? Maybe you're still reading this book to your kids, Chicken Little. You know, the sky is always falling. Some people approach life that way, and they, they, they turn on the news, always looking for what is bad today. What evidence is there that the sky is falling today? The person who fears the Lord, it's not that they don't care about what's going on in the world, it doesn't, but it doesn't control them. It doesn't control their minds. It doesn't control their emotions. He's not afraid of the bad news, verse 7. His heart is what? Firm. Why? Because he's trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. I love that word. Calm, firm, strong, steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his Adversaries. So instead of always seeing what's bad in the world and responding uh, in fear and being given to panic, when we fear the Lord, our heart is firm. Our heart is steady. We're trusting in the Lord. We're not going to be afraid. God will keep us steady until that day when we look upon our adversaries in triumph. Whose triumph? Triumph of Christ, who we are connected to by faith. And so his victory becomes our victory. We are victors. Too many times we live like we are victims, when in reality, if we know Christ, we are victors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Turn to... uh, prophet Jeremiah to the right in your Bible, just a few books there, Jeremiah 17. There's a simple contrast here between the person who fears the Lord and the person who does not fear the Lord that I think is just so helpful. I've run to this passage many times uh, throughout my Christian life and sought comfort from the Lord when I was going through things that were uh, feeling very threatening and I and I felt like uh, I was being overtaken by fear and anxiety or, or even panic. But Jeremiah 17, verse 5 says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt Land. So those first two verses describe the person who does not fear the Lord, the person who does not trust the Lord, but instead, verse 5 says, trusts in man, makes flesh his strength, trusts perhaps in his own strength or in the strength of another person. And the heart is turned away from the Lord. So the reason the trust is in man is because the heart has turned its trust away from the Lord. See, we always trust something. We always trust someone. 
Some people say, well, I don't trust anyone. Well, yes, you do. Because what your heart gravitates toward is what you trust in. And this man here is described as one who is gravitating toward trusting in man because his heart is already turned away from trusting in God. And what does that lead to? Well, it leads to living in a spiritual desert, verse 6, in the parched places of the wilderness. But then in great contrast, look at verse 5. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. So not only is he actively trusting, verb, in the Lord, but his trust, his object of trust is the Lord. See, faith is only as good as the object that you place it in. Your trust is only as solid as who the basis of your trust is. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Now look at the difference, verse 8. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. So he's not always afraid, but he's steady. His heart is firm, like Psalm 112 says. And so when the heat comes, its leaves remain green. In the midst of trials and suffering, the man or the woman who fears the Lord becomes spiritually stronger, not weaker. And God shows his strength through us, and our fruitfulness remains. And he is not anxious in the year of drought, says where it does not cease to bear fruit. That's what we are like when we trust the Lord. We're like that tree. We remain fruitful. Leaves are green, even if everything around us seems to be dying. Back to Psalm 112. There's a fourth way to love the Lord above all else, verses 9 and 10. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Psalm 112 ends much like Psalm 1 does, with a contrast between the righteous and the wicked, and very much like the verses we just looked at in Jeremiah 17. The righteous endures forever, it says in verse 9, but the wicked man sees it and is angry. What does he see? He sees the threats. He sees the danger. He sees the adversaries. He sees the blessing of the, of the person who walks with God. Isn't that interesting? Verse 10 is such an interesting verse. Why is it that unbelievers sometimes get so angry when God blesses us. You're a righteous person and you love the Lord above all else. and You are this blessed man or, or a blessed woman by this description. 
wicked people in the world who are filled with anger against God are also angry with God's people. They don't understand why it is that God blesses his people. We see these blessings and we rejoice, right? And we're encouraged and we give thanks. But the wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Just as Psalm 1 says, the wicked are not so, that is, the wicked do not prosper like the blessed man prospers, but they are like chaff, chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked person will not stand in the day of judgment, Psalm 1 says, because they do not have righteousness. We will stand in the day of judgment not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is given to us as a gift of grace received through faith when we come to him. And that righteousness then that we receive imputed to us from the Lord Jesus begins to work itself out in the new creature that we are as a Christian. We are new creations. We are becoming more and more like Christ. So the righteousness that we possess by faith slowly, progressively becomes practical righteousness, that is, righteous living. And that may lead to trouble in this world. Surely it will lead to trouble in this world. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy that if you want to live godly in this world, then you better expect that you will be persecuted. You will be opposed. You stand for the truth of God's word. Be prepared. You will be opposed. But praise God, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to panic. Our heart can be steady. Our heart can be firm because we are trusting in the Lord. One commentator says it this way, the wicked man will not achieve his purpose, his goal, or find his dreams. He will die a disappointed man. While the righteous will endure forever, the ungodly will rot off the face of the earth. It's the way it works in God's system. Now, if this morning you're thinking of the fear of the Lord only as an Old Testament concept, then you're mistaken. So I want us to turn now to the New Testament to see how the fear of the Lord works itself out in our lives as believers. Just one, one text I want to show you, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because this fearing the Lord is a New Testament call as well, not just an Old Testament uh, exhortation to us. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse uh, 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. 
In other words, therefore you know is there for a reason, and so we go backwards a couple verses where we understand that in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, Paul has been talking about death, and he's talking about what happens after the death of a believer. That is, that we enter the very presence of the Lord. And that leads him to be of good courage, it says in verse 8, that whether he is away from the body or at home with the Lord, he is going to be of good courage. Why? Because we walk by faith and not by sight. We are trusting in the Lord. But then look at verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul, as a follower of the Lord Jesus, says, I make it my aim to be pleasing to the Lord wherever I am, because someday all of us as Christians are going to appear before something the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. That's different from the great white throne judgment that's described in Revelation 20. The great white throne judgment is the judgment of all unbelievers, those who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That's a final judgment that then leads to and eternity in a place called hell. But we as believers, our sins are forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ because of his shed blood on the cross of Calvary. And so we can stand in the day of judgment, but still we will give an account, verse 10 says. We will give an account for our Christian life. Because our whole Christian life is a stewardship from God. Sometimes we, we hear the word stewardship, and the only thing we think about is money. And yet, stewardship encompasses every area of our lives. We're to be faithful stewards of everything in our life. Why? Because someday we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So it's at that judgment seat of Christ when the rewards will be given out for our faithfulness. But at that judgment seat of Christ, there will also be tears that you and I shed for the things that we did while Christians that were sinful, that brought shame to the Lord's name ways in which we did not trust him and we acted instead in unfaithfulness. But thank the Lord, Revelation says, God will wipe away all of those tears and there shall be no more. And all things will be made new. What a glorious truth that is. So go back now to verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. So now you understand what he means there. Why does Paul say the fear of the Lord motivates him to tell others of Christ? Well, it's because he wants them, when their spirit is separated from their body, he wants their spirit to go to be with the Lord. He doesn't want them to go to eternal punishment. 
And so we persuade others. What do we persuade others of? We persuade others of their need for the Lord Jesus and his sufficiency to take care of their sin problem and to be their gracious, loving, faithful master and Lord. But then skip down to verse 14, because now you see how this fear is also love. This fear of the Lord is this reverent love that we've been talking about. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What is the fear of the Lord that Paul and his companions knew from experience? It is the love of Christ that produces that fear of the Lord. There's a great debate in verse 14 whether this is the love that Christ has for us or this is the love that we have for Christ. And I can't escape the concept that both are included there. The love that Christ has for us, what a motivation that is for us to then follow him as the supreme love of our lives. And yet it is our love for him in return that then motivates us to fear him and to persuade others that they too might know him and be saved. When the Lord saves us by his grace, he begins this process of remaking us into the image of the Lord Jesus who always loved the Father and always obeyed the word. Why did Jesus die for our sins? Why was he raised from the dead? Well, many Christians only think of this in terms of heaven and salvation after they die. And yet, what does Paul say? He died that those who live, verse 15, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Why did Jesus die on the cross for our sins? Why was he raised from the dead? Not simply to give us a ticket to heaven that we put in our back pocket and then we continue to live the way we want to live. No, it was to transform us that we would stop living for ourselves, which is the natural thing we do, and instead live for him who died for us and rose again. This is the supreme love. This is the fear of the Lord, which is to love God above all else. What an amazing call this is to us from Psalm 112. This morning, I think it's fitting for us to pray a portion of Scripture together, out loud, from the heart. It comes from Psalm 119. And here in this portion, uh, the psalmist is asking God to increase his fear of him, to cause him to grow in the fear of the Lord by delighting in the word of God. Let's do the same. Let's begin. Everyone out loud together, prayerfully from your heart, teach me, O Lord, 
the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. And so, Father, this is our prayer this morning, that you would so stir our hearts to delight in your word so that we will then grow in our love for you that you will be truly our supreme love. In the name of Jesus, we pray.